World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm Edward McBride, filling in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. American diplomats have been fighting corruption in Eastern Europe for a long time. But the impeachment hearings in Washington are undermining their work by creating the impression that America's politicians behave just like their Eastern European counterparts. And... Jerusalem cemeteries are running out of plots, since both Jews and Muslims typically prefer to be buried rather than cremated. The answer, one Israeli company believes, is to build a huge catacomb, 18 stories underground. But first... For nearly six months, anti-government protests have raged in Hong Kong, becoming ever more violent. This weekend, the push for change on the streets was echoed at the ballot box. Hong Kongers came out in record numbers to vote in local elections. The vote was widely seen as a referendum on the protests and on the administration of Chief Executive Carrie Lam. Pro-democracy campaigners made unprecedented gains sending a clear signal to the Hong Kong government and to the Chinese authorities in Beijing. Yesterday, there were local elections in Hong Kong, which normally are a small-scale affair. But the outcome, I think, surprised everybody. Dominic Ziegler is our senior Asia correspondent, based in Hong Kong. The vote was very, very firmly for the democratic camp that has been behind nearly six months of protests. Last time round, of the 18 district councils in Hong Kong, the Democrats controlled none. As of now, they control 17 of those 18. It's an extraordinary result. And what will it mean exactly? As you say, local elections are normally a dull affair. Well, it does have to do with more than just rubbish collection and putting speed bumps on streets. There are a number of consequences. One is that the makeup of the district councils actually affects the Legislative Council, known as LegCo in Hong Kong. And unlike the district councils, where there is universal suffrage, the votes are rigged in the Legislative Council. Only half of the seats are fully chosen by Hong Kongers. The other half are manipulated in different ways. But of that half that's manipulated, five seats come from the district councils. So democratic representation in those councils also means a stronger democratic representation in the Legislative Councils. Possibly more importantly, the district councils affect the makeup of committees which hitherto have chosen, not democratically, the chief executive of Hong Kong, that's to say the number one in the territory. So this is really important because there'll now be much more democratic representation on these committees. Beijing doesn't lose control, but certainly the Democrats now have more sway than they ever did before. Nearer term, the result is so overwhelming that it will be very hard for Carrie Lam, the chief executive, to ignore. And the message that she should have got from 
yesterday's vote is that it's time now to open a dialogue with those who have been calling for change for the past six months. It's now time to address the demands for more representation, for more accountability. I should add, though, that it also makes her position very much less tenable. This was a vote against her. So are there any signs that the government is open to dialogue with the protesters or, or for that matter, that the protesters are open to dialogue with the government? There are a few signs that the government is open to dialogue, although Carrie Lam did today say that she had taken note of the result. Quite how she will respond to it is not yet clear. She has been very flat-footed to date. After all, the protests began when she proposed a bill that would have allowed people to be extradited to the mainland if they'd been accused of crimes there. And it took her a very long time and huge demonstrations before she was ready to withdraw that bill. If she is as obtuse now, well, then that spells trouble because there are now expectations from the protest side, from the democratic camp. Now the majority, no longer the opposition, certainly in terms of numbers. And they would expect to see movement. The risk, if they don't see it, is that the last few days of really enjoyable and hopeful calm risk being broken again and Hong Kong returns to that cycle of violence that it has recently seen. And what sort of gestures do you think they'd be looking for on the side of the protesters and on the side of the democracy movement to be willing to start talking? Well, the government will say, well, you must end the violence and then we'll talk. But it's not as simple as that. And it's actually on the government side that we've seen this lack of a, of a desire for a dialogue. Despite the violence, and one can and should criticise it, it is actually government actions that have brought us to this point more than anything. And now the first step really has to be taken by the government. There is, at the moment, relative calm in Hong Kong, so this is a moment the government should seize it. Do we have any sense of what the plan of the Chinese central government in Beijing is? We don't have a great deal of sense because it's a very secretive leadership. What I think is the case is that early threats that the People's Liberation Army or the paramilitary police would come into Hong Kong to reimpose order were by and large bluster. And Carrie Lam herself acknowledged that in leaked comments a couple of months ago. Beijing is very reluctant to intervene. If it has had a plan and it's not been clear that it has, it's to see these protests run out of energy. And once the protest movement is dissipated or ordinary Hong Kongers have turned against it, then Beijing and those who do its business in Hong Kong can re-establish control. Well, yesterday's vote made it very clear that the mass of Hong Kongers still stand very firmly behind the demands for accountability and for democracy. So it sounds like the high-ups in Beijing weren't expecting the sort of results that we've had from the local elections. I suspect they'll be extremely shocked. After all, for many weeks, they've been saying that opinion polls showing support for the protests have been biased. They've always accused those who run such polls of belonging to liberal universities influenced too much by the West. They've accused the protests themselves of being masterminded by the West. This result is so emphatic, it will be very hard for the authorities in Beijing to continue with that line of reasoning. They'll also be questioning the quality of information that they're getting up in Beijing. They ought to be asking how on earth it is that their representations in Hong Kong, and most of those reside in the so-called liaison office in the territory, how it is that members of the liaison office have been passing up the chain, such poor information. So it sounds like the central government in China had no idea the true state of public opinion in Hong Kong. How had it been trying to bring people around and win influence? 
Well, for years, its influence operations in Hong Kong have been extensive. And it's not just been a question of appointing officials seen as friendly and loyal to Beijing. The Communist Party itself has underground cells that operate throughout the territory. Beijing has been financing pro-China grassroots political parties. The liaison office buys up businesses. The tycoons in Hong Kong have been co-opted by being offered juicy deals on the mainland. And I think that one aspect of the emphatic vote yesterday was a very strong rejection of this form of influence peddling, undermining the kinds of values and the autonomy that people in Hong Kong we've seen this summer are prepared to fight for. So the Chinese government had this poor information. It's been delivered this disappointment. The Hong Kong government looks a little flailing. What do you think happens now? I think that there will be attempts to move things back to a political plane. And even the possibility of discussing political reforms in the territory may be something that comes back to the table. The case for China agreeing to that is the hope of a quieter, more stable territory. And my sense is that if Hong Kong tries to make the running in this area, then Beijing will let it. My worry, though, is that Hong Kong authorities lack the means, they lack the imagination to launch into this kind of political dialogue. What will be the signs that we're moving in the right direction? We need to see a couple of things. The first is an acknowledgement by Carrie Lam's administration that this vote means something and that it means the government is going to change its stance. The second thing is to announce a fully independent inquiry into the causes of this year's unrests and into police abuse and excessive use of its power, including lethal force. And if the government promises that it will implement any recommendations that such an independent inquiry comes up with, then I am sure that will go a very long way to reducing tensions that have been running extremely high in the territory in recent weeks. Dominic, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Edward. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. The fight against corruption in Eastern Europe has long been a pillar of U.S. foreign policy. American aid has backed independent journalists and trained judges and prosecutors. It's a policy which has been brought to the fore during the ongoing impeachment inquiry by witnesses, including the State Department official, George Kent. For the past five years, we have focused our united efforts across the Atlantic to support Ukraine in its fight for the cause of freedom and the rebirth of a country free from Russian dominion and the warped legacy of Soviet institutions and post-Soviet behavior. But now that effort is in trouble, not least from the fallout of the impeachment inquiry itself. America cares about corruption in Eastern Europe because it's become clear over the course of the last five years at least, if not longer, that corruption in Eastern Europe is closely linked to Russian influence. Matt Steinglass is The Economist's Europe correspondent. I mean, the United States has always cared about corruption in the sense that it undermines democracy and America is interested in promoting the democracy and the rule of law around the world. But this used to be seen sort of as a human rights concern. And what started to become clear in the early 2010s 
uh, as relations with Russia started to get a lot worse, was that a lot of the corruption in Eastern Europe was often linked to Russian money laundering streams. And it was a way that Russian oligarchs and the Russian government exercised influence in Eastern European countries. Uh, and especially after the revolution in Ukraine in 2014, it became abundantly clear that uh, corruption was a tool of Russian influence. Um, it was used to buy the loyalty of uh, politicians in Eastern Europe. And that meant that it had a kind of a strategic security dimension, which people hadn't really been thinking about before. So you started to hear American diplomats saying things like corruption is the new communism and uh, saying that corruption is no longer just a human rights concern. It's now part of American security policy in Eastern Europe. And how is the fight against corruption going in Eastern Europe? It's actually a mixed bag. In some countries, the fight against corruption has gone remarkably well. Uh, Romania is often held up as an example. They established an independent anti-corruption prosecutor. She was rather implacable and put thousands of government officials and corrupt business people in jail over a period of several years. That earned her the hostility of the government, obviously. Um, but uh, in other countries, it has gone much less well. And in Ukraine in particular, the fight against corruption has turned into a, a pitched battle between the, the oligarchs who are used to running Ukrainian politics and anti-corruption reformers and NGOs. Uh, and they have found American support and European support to be a crucial, indispensable tool in uh, fighting back against oligarchic corruption. So how has the Trump administration been different from the Obama administration in pursuing this sort of anti-Russia, anti-corruption agenda? The anti-corruption agenda really became one of the top-line policy questions late in the Obama administration. And the Trump administration has embraced it with much less enthusiasm. Uh, in particular, uh, a top policy official named A. Wes Mitchell took over responsibility for Central and Eastern Europe in early 2017. And his feeling was that the United States was being too vocal in calling out regional governments for corruption, and that that was actually pushing them into the arms of Russia in some cases. Uh, he felt, for example, with Hungary, which has come under tremendous fire for abridging the rule of law, that uh, part of the reason why Hungary might be drifting towards Russia was that Europe and the U.S. were being too tough on it. The thing is, there hasn't been an explicit policy change under Trump. Nominally, the U.S. is still very much in support of fighting corruption in Eastern Europe. And in a lot of countries, local embassies and local foreign service officers have just gone ahead with anti-corruption policy. But what's happening now because of the impeachment drama is that people are starting to wonder whether the United States is actually such a beacon of anti-corruption as it had been making itself out to be. So I talked to one State Department diplomat, for example, who said – what they are seeing in this White House is exactly the kind of stuff we have been preaching against. And there's a feeling that the United States has lost credibility to try to preach rule of law issues. So have the impeachment hearings themselves shed any light on this? Or are there any moments that stand out that, that uh, explain the new American posture? Yeah, I think the testimony of former uh, ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch, was very striking for a lot of anti-corruption activists in Ukraine because uh, she was removed basically because she was too aggressive in pursuing anti-corruption policies and she crossed some oligarchs who didn't like that. Ukrainians who preferred to play by the old corrupt rules sought to remove me. What continues to amaze me is that they found Americans willing to partner with them and working together, they apparently succeeded in orchestrating the removal 
of a U.S. ambassador. Another really significant moment of testimony came from Fiona Hill, who was a top Russia advisor in the White House. Some of you on this committee appear to believe that Russia and its security services did not conduct a campaign against our country, and that perhaps, somehow, for some reason, Ukraine did. This is a fictional narrative that has been perpetrated and propagated by the Russian security services themselves. And she explained how the kinds of disinformation that we're starting to see in the U.S. in defense of Donald Trump are classic Russian disinformation strategies and play into Russian uh, foreign policy goals in the region. The unfortunate truth is that Russia was the foreign power that systematically attacked our democratic institutions in 2016. I would ask that you please not promote politically driven falsehoods that so clearly advance Russian interests. And many anti-corruption activists in Ukraine and elsewhere in Eastern Europe say the same thing. They say, you know, we're used to seeing the, the kinds of smears that we're seeing on social media and the kinds of lies that are being told uh, in defense of, of, uh, of President Trump. Those are the kinds of things that we're used to seeing coming from oligarchs uh, uh, on our side of the Atlantic. And we are shocked to see that they're being deployed in the United States by Americans. So this is all very dispiriting. What, what do you think the long-term consequences are? Well, I think you want to look at the consequences in, in Eastern Europe and then you want to look at the consequences in the United States. Uh, the consequences in Eastern Europe are it's possible that anti-corruption policy and American support for it could recover in the future. Uh, there are a lot of countries in Eastern Europe that are sort of under the radar where you still have career foreign service officers who are pursuing classic American policy. And um, they have been in some cases pretty effective in places like Moldova and uh, Czech Republic. They're still carrying out the policy. However, there are a lot of anti-corruption officials in the State Department and elsewhere in the United States government who have become so discouraged by all of this that they're quitting. And that could, in the long term, devastate American anti-corruption policy. And on a broader scale, I think the consequences that you're seeing for American politics are very grave. I think a lot of these Eastern European anti-corruption activists are absolutely right that the kinds of politics we're seeing practiced in the U.S. right now, in some cases, resemble the kinds of practices that have, uh, that have been entrenched in your Eastern European politics uh, since uh, the fall of communism. And um, that's... Uh, very scary omen for the United States. Matt, thank you very much. Thanks, Ed. Underneath Jerusalem's biggest graveyard, a huge catacomb has just been opened, stretching 18 stories below ground. Going into the Minarot Olam underground cemetery, you suddenly feel as if you're in a massive honeycomb. Anshul Pfeffer is The Economist's Israel correspondent. The graves are drilled in these very, very neat cylindrical holes to the walls, and there are just rows and rows and rows of them. Right now, that honeycomb has space for 23,000 bodies, but there are plans to expand it when needed. And to add to the impression, you've got these massive yellow machines trundling around and doing all the drilling, which look a bit like giant bees. Well, it, it sounds less like a honeycomb and, and more like catacombs in, in the classical sense, except, of course, that all these underground chambers are mechanical. Yes, classically, it's a catacomb. The catacombs have not been in use for over a thousand years, but it's the same basic idea, burying people underground. Anybody who's ever been to the famous catacombs in Rome and in other, other cities 
very, very dark and dank affairs. This is a ultra-modern cemetery which is planned to be open 24 hours a day with uh, climate control and constant smart lighting. Any kind of underground work obviously involves excavation, making tunnels and so on. But the actual grave holes have to be drilled very precisely so they'll fit a body, so that they can be stacked close up to each other. They have to be at a very specific angle so that seepage from decomposing bodies it won't leak out. Basically, all mod cons you could dream to have in a cemetery. But all mod cons usually come at a price. The price tag is around 250 million shekels or $70 million. Spent over 10 years. It's already been about three years in construction. They've, they've dedicated it earlier this month, and the first burial is expected to be by the end of 2019. And people think that's worth it? It, it sounds very expensive. It is expensive, but burying people is a, a business which is dictated by the rules of real estate. And Jerusalem is a very crowded city. The main Jewish cemetery of Jerusalem on the city's western approach is almost full. So uh, the expense of going underground seems to be worthwhile. Uh, the, the main company which runs the cemetery also believes that it can offset some of the costs by selling graves to families uh, who want to be buried together, couples, and so on. So they, they believe they can make it work. As you say, the economics of it are, are, are dictated by the property market. But, but why is that a particular problem in Jerusalem more than in any other city? Well, because Jerusalem has both the Jewish and Muslim communities, and these are communities which do not cremate, they believe, in burial in the ground, and therefore every person who dies needs a burial plot. Real estate in Jerusalem is strongly contested, both uh, for religious reasons and for real estate reasons. It, it, it's, it's, it's quite a crowded city. And th this is true in, in many cities around the world. You know, People who still want to be buried in a cemetery, usually their families have to either pay a, a huge amount of money for plots or travel far out of town. So do you have the sense that all these uh, new burial plots in town will be taken up, even though they're, they're bound to be uh, very expensive? Well, the communities of Jerusalem are used to burying just next to the town. Jews also hold very regular memorial services by the grave for years after the person has died. So it's important for them to have one really as close as possible to where they live. So I think there will be an uptake on, on this underground cemetery. And it offers basically limitless space because when the 23,000 planned graves are full, they can just carry on digging. Anshul, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's all from us on The Intelligence. But we'd like to know more about you and what you think of the show. Do us a favor and head over to economist.com slash podsurvey. See you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. 
Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys' club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.